Let's pray together. Father, we do long for that day when we will all stand together, see you face to face, and proclaim your glory and your worth together in a never-ending world of joy. And Father, as we look toward that end, I pray that you would give us lives now that reflect the glories to come. Help us to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to love your truth. Help us to love holiness. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who have a greater and greater assurance of our salvation and of the glories of the age to come such that we are pulled forward through the toils and labors and worries and anxieties of this world and we come through bright shining as the sun. And Father, may our lingering over the word this morning bring us closer there. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is a, a chapter titled The Scouring of the Shire. You may remember this if you've ever read the books, but uh, at this point, the very end, the Ring of Power has been destroyed. Sauron has been killed. His dark armies have been decimated. There's a new king who sits on the throne in the White City with his elven queen, and they are all poised to preside over a dynasty of peace and justice. But then you've got these four heroic hobbits who are now on their way home. It's a long journey back to the Shire, and yet when the four hobbits return home, they find out that the reign of justice is still contested where they live. Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin find themselves at the Brandywine Bridge, and it's closed, and it's being guarded by these hobbits, menacing hobbits who are telling them they can't cross over and come back home. They have a new boss over them who's sort of closed everything down in the Shire and is not open to outsiders, not even open to these hobbits coming home. And so these little hobbit sheriffs are standing there telling these homecoming warriors that they can't, they're not welcome. Well, these are not the same mild-mannered hobbits that fled the Shire a year earlier. They are battle-hardened, flint-faced warriors clad in armor-riding horses, and they laugh at these little hobbit sheriffs, and they just ride on past. Well, it turns out those little sheriffs weren't alone. The whole Shire had been taken over not long after the hobbits left. The, the, the whole Shire had been taken over by these men who had come in, and they were oppressing the hobbits. There was a shortage of food, and things had become really, really dire within the Shire. And these overlords were bitterly oppressing and abusing the hobbits that were living in the Shire. These men were being led by this mysterious figure named Sharky. Frodo, Sam, and Merry, and Pippin, once they figured out everything that was going on, they mustered an entire village to rebel and to take up arms against Sharky and his minions. And nearly, it all comes together in the Battle of Brandywine Bridge, I think is what it was called. 
And there's about 100 men who show up to fight against this hobbit village. And they go to war, and the hobbits kill about 70 of the men, and then the rest are put to flight. The leader, Sharky, is captured, and it turns out that he's, he turns out to be none other than Sauron, who was that traitorous wizard who had earlier allied with Sauron himself and betrayed Gandalf and the four hobbits. Sauron tries to put a curse on the village, even though he's defeated, but he has no power. So there's no curse alights on this village. So in one last desperate attempt, he tries to kill Frodo, takes out a knife, tries to stab him, but Frodo's armor protects him, saves him. And so he flees, and as he's fleeing, his little minion, his little servant, Wormtongue, murders him. And then Wormtongue himself is destroyed by hobbit arrows as he tries to flee. And so thus you have the scouring of the Shire at the very end of the story. It's completely scrubbed of evil. But it was costly... And it required a direct confrontation. Why did there have to be a confrontation? I mean, why, why couldn't Tolkien just have written it so that the hobbits come home and they see that you know, this guy Sharky's in charge and everybody's oppressed and they just peacefully coexist there in the Shire? Why couldn't Tolkien have written it that way? Because in Tolkien's world, as in the real world, Good and evil cannot be reconciled. Either the good will drive out the evil or the evil will drive out the good or the good will become evil or the evil will become good. But in no case do good and evil just simply coexist indefinitely. If the evil are allowed to persist unopposed, they will eventually corrupt everything and everyone. We're not in the Shire. We are in a church. What happens in a congregation when evil arises and goes unopposed? Let's say a man comes in to the church one day. And he is professing Christ. He's got a big personality. He's dazzling everyone with his humor and his charm. He gives what appears to be a credible profession of faith, and he's eventually welcomed into the membership of the church. And pretty soon after that, he starts a little informal Bible study at his home. He's so charismatic, so friendly. People are just naturally gravitating to him. He's so actually positive and encouraging to people. He begins teaching in his Bible study that God wishes for people to have abundant life. And that abundant life includes blessing his people with material prosperity and health. And if folks will just believe, if they just have enough faith, they will receive from heaven showers of wealth and health, good reports from the oncologist. Gradually, he begins to sow seeds of doubt about anybody who isn't open to this kind of health and wealth, prosperity, from the Lord. And eventually he begins using his Bible study to oppose directly even what the pastors are teaching at the church. What's the responsibility of the elders in a situation like that? What's the responsibility of the congregation in a situation like that? Would it be the right thing simply to try to peacefully coexist? 
Just let them go. Let the teaching spread. What happens in a situation where it's becoming increasingly evident that you've got a bad actor in your midst and all the good actors just sort of stand aside and give him free reign? You know what happens? His disease will spread like gangrene in the church. More people will be drawn in and exploited and destroyed. You, you can't just stand aside and just hope everything comes out okay. If you do that, you become a part of the problem. It will be as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's, it's going to spread. And it's going to hurt a lot of people. Well, this is exactly the kind of situation that Paul is facing as he writes his final letter to the Corinthians. If you haven't already, open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 15. Now, the last time we looked at this chapter, we read about Paul's concern for the Corinthians. We read about the fact that the Corinthians were falling under the spell of false teachers that were in their midst. And so he told them in verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, we apostles proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indicating that people had come in and they were doing this. They were preaching a different gospel, preaching a, dif had a different spirit. It's a whole other Jesus. Now you got the Corinthians. What are they doing? It's not the scouring of the shire. They're just standing back and they're letting this go. So there are people in their midst preaching another Jesus. And the congregation appears to be putting up with it. They think they can just coexist with Sauron and his minions. But Paul's about to engage in a direct confrontation with them. And I think he's going to give us his most pointed condemnation of them and their teaching that we've seen up until this point. He's been engaged in engaging them at different points all through this book. But it's about to get really sharp. And this confrontation is going to unfold in three layers. And this is where we're going. We're going to see Paul's authentic apostleship in verses 5 through 6. Paul's free ministry in verses 7 through 11. Paul's direct confrontation in verses 12 through 15. So his authentic apostleship, verses 5 to 6. His free ministry, verses 7 to 11. And his direct confrontation in verses 12 through 15. So first of all, Paul's authentic apostleship. Everybody look at verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, look at what Paul says there. The first question that we have to ask and answer after reading this verse is, who in the world are these so-called super apostles? Some translations, like the New American Standard Bible or the King James Version, if you're reading one of those, they will render that phrase not as super apostles, but as like the, the most eminent apostles. King James Version says something like the chiefest apostles. That kind of a rendering suggests that Paul actually refers to bona fide apostles of Christ. The good guys. 
In fact, the most eminent of the good guys, the apostles in Jerusalem, like Peter and James and John. But I don't think that that's very likely what Paul means here, because Paul seems to be talking about the same people that he was, we were just heard about in verses 3 and 4, who were deceiving them like the serpent deceived Eve, and who were preaching another Jesus. Also, they seem to be the same people that Paul describes in verses 13 through 15, who he calls false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, who are, in fact, servants of Satan. It's, it's really impossible to imagine that Paul is speaking of real apostles in those kinds of terms. So, so I don't think that this is best rendered as the most eminent apostles or chiefest apostles. I think what you see there, if you're reading the ESV, is, is something close to correct. Something like super apostles. And you'll notice in some other translations, not the ESV, but other translations, they'll have super apostles in quotation marks, which is the translators trying to tell you that Paul is, is using scare quotes. So the, the way that, that Jim just read this, when you heard him read this scripture a while ago, he says, I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles. That is exactly the tone that, that we think that Paul has here. So and why is that? Well, he, he's, he's, he's basically, he, he doesn't think they're real apostles. He, think they're, he thinks they're so-called apostles. They're super apostles. And that impression is reinforced if you look at this little underlying term there that he uses. You don't have to remember this, but it's hooperleon, okay? And it, th this Greek word appears, to, it, it doesn't really appear in Greek literature uh, very much, if at all, before Paul says it here. It looks like Paul made up a word. He made up a word to describe these guys. And if you, if you translate it really literally, it'd be the beyond exceedingly apostles. apostles. Okay, that, that's what he'd be saying. So it's, it, it's such an odd expression that you get the feeling he's speaking sardonically here. Almost like he's saying they're the super duper apostles. Or they're the hugey magrugy apostles. Or the biggie wiggy apostles, okay? I mean, he's, he's making up terms here to, to sort of exaggerate, right? And to, and to sort of, you know, cast shade on them is really what he's doing here. So it's almost like he's saying, look, I don't want you to think that these, you know, super-duper apostles know more than me or have more of a direct line to God's revelation than me. That, that's the point that he's getting at here. And he explains why in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way. We have made this plain to you in all things. And you remember when he says we, he's talking about himself. Remember? So he says, I've, I've been making this plain to you in, in all of my ministry to you. That statement there in verse 6 reminds you of the criticism that they had been leveling against Paul. You remember back in chapter 10 and verse 10 where it says, For they say, his opponents, some people in the congregation, they say his letters are weighty. And strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Meaning, okay, when he's right, when he writes to us, really bold. When he speaks, kind of mousy, something like that. But I think we're reading this wrong if we think that this reflects that Paul was some kind of a bad speaker or had no power when he preached among the, the Corinthians. I don't think that's what, what, what he's saying there at all. I think he's probably just referring to the fact that when it comes to like, you know, polished Greek rhetorical techniques. He was kind of an amateur at that, okay? He, he wasn't into the Greek rhetorical tradition. Probably 
that would have been apparent to his listeners, especially to those who had heard other philosophers or speakers come through town and used this refined mode of persuasive speaking. Perhaps especially to those, this would have been apparent to those false teachers who set themselves up as rivals to Paul and who may have been very well learned in this and were making unfavorable comparisons of themselves and their abilities compared to Paul. But here's the thing. Paul was never interested in manipulative rhetorical flourishes in his ministry. He was more concerned with preaching Christ powerfully through the Spirit. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I'm not using these polished Greek rhetorical techniques that you guys are fans of. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so again, Paul is saying here back in verse 6, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, kind of conceding the point a little bit, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. No matter what his rhetorical abilities are, his knowledge is second to none. As an apostle, he has received a direct commission from Jesus himself to bear Christ's name to the Gentiles. And he has been receiving direct revelation from Christ when he communicates to the Corinthians. In fact, at the end of this book, in chapter 13 and verse 3, Paul says he refers to the Christ who speaks in me. He says in chapter 12... He talks about being caught up into the third heaven and seeing visions and revelations of the Lord and hearing inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to hear. Paul saw way more and heard way more direct revelation from God than these other guys did. In fact, they are not hearing that at all. And he is. He's basically saying that when it comes to what he, Paul, has to offer versus what the super-duper apostles have to offer... There's no comparison here. They might have high-flown speech and rhetoric, but they don't have the Spirit of Christ speaking through them like Paul does. And so when you're trying to figure out and weigh out what's better, rhetorical flourishes or Christ, and it's pretty clear what's more important. And it's pretty clear it ought to be who the real apostle is and who they should be listening to. So, you know, imagine your response if when you came into church today, you walk up outside and you come towards the front entrance and you see a man standing out in front of the building and he's wearing a sandwich board and it kind of scares you when you see him because he's got his shirt off and he's barefoot. It looks like he's not wearing anything under there, but you notice he's got some shorts on under there. But he's wearing a sandwich board and he's got a, you know, words on there and it's saying, uh, beware of this church. And he starts telling you when you come in, leave this church. It's about to be washed away in a flood. Run for your lives. Now, how would you respond to a guy standing out there looking like that, telling you that when you're walking into the church on a day like today? Now, more than likely, you're going to assume he probably needs some help. You're going to assume that he's some kind of a crackpot, doesn't know what he's talking about, and eventually you're probably just going to go to church, right? Would your response be any different if you arrived and instead of seeing a crackpot and a sandwich board, you see two police cars with officers at different entrances of the church, and the officers are standing there with elders of the church. 
And they're telling people as they come in, hey, one of the levees on the Ohio River just broke. The river's at flood stage. Also, those storm clouds you see overhead, they're dumping flash floods just west of here. We're expecting 10 inches before the day is out. Also, a water main just broke in the area, and we expect very soon for this entire neighborhood to be flooded in water, including the roads in and out. We're not trying to keep you from going to church. We just want you to know what's going to be happening here in about an hour or two. Now, is your response to the police officer and the elders going to be different than it would be to the guy in the sandwich board? Yeah, it would be. Why? Because you know you're hearing from authorities who have been authorized to communicate that kind of information to you. The one guy has a sandwich board. The police officers and the elders have actual authority and therefore speak with authority. And so you respond accordingly. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians. The church is being dazzled by these false teachers and their flashy rhetoric. And Paul's trying to show them that the, they're just being led astray by guys, you know, half-dressed, wearing sandwich boards. They don't have the Spirit of Christ. Paul has the Spirit of Christ. He's the one authorized by Jesus to speak to them on his behalf, not these other guys. We don't have an apostle in our midst, but we do have the apostolic word in our midst. This book is the very word of God. When this book speaks, God speaks. It bears his authority and power. This is why we do what we do in here every week. Singing the word, preaching the word, praying the word, displaying the word and the elements. We come here to hear from God. And if we believe this is the word of God, why would we listen to any other rival message or voice? When you hear pastors Faithful teachers communicating to you directly from and faithfully from the word of God. Why would you resist that kind of ministry? If you're a Christian, you don't. You welcome it. Come what may, you welcome the word of God in your life as bearing the authority of God himself. And you don't get drawn away by crazy guys wearing sandwich boards. You stick with the Spirit of Christ. And so Paul is, again, reasserting his authentic apostleship. He has been authorized to speak to them, not these other guys who are coming, these super-duper apostles. But he also talks about not just his authentic apostleship, but his free ministry. Everybody look at verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you now this is referring back clearly to the way that Paul has supported himself when he's there in person and among the Corinthians the fact of the matter was he just did not accept compensation for gospel services rendered he did not accept that from the Corinthians. And it's been that way since the, he very first came to them. You can go back, you can look at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, where you see Paul's initial evangelistic crusade in Corinth. And the Bible says that when he arrived in Corinth, what did he do? 
started making tents. He worked at a trade. And then on the weekends, he was in the synagogue preaching to the Jews. Was it a sin that he provided for himself in that way? Well, of course it wasn't a sin. It was, it, it was, however, a bit of a humbling thing for him to do this because in the eyes of the leisured class in Corinth, they likely would have viewed this as demeaning for somebody to be doing that kind of menial work. Uh, many commentators recognize that in the ancient world, craftsmen were held in low regard by the leisured class in the ancient world. So even though Paul was supporting himself, relying maybe on donations from other churches, the leisured class would not have appreciated preachers with dirt under their fingernails. They sneered at that. Preachers should be above that. They should have flashy suits, ear-tickling rhetoric, the look and the feel of the cool and the in and the with it. They shouldn't look like they just got through hauling pulpwood all week. And so apparently, some of these Corinthians didn't appreciate the scruffy, tent-making Paul coming around and blowing up all their elitist paradigms. Paul is writing to them in this letter trying to poke a hole in all their elitist paradigms and in all their disdain for his humility. And at the same time, he's trying to confront their love for the false teachers who are opposite of Paul, who are more self-exalting and more admiring of worldliness. So Paul didn't literally rob these other churches. He's, again, speaking sardonically here. Oh, I robbed these other guys so I could serve you. I'm taking from them so that I could serve you. And you're looking down on me for that? It's so unseemly to see and to witness their sneering attitude towards the apostles' ministry. And so look what he says in verse 9. When I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So here he is again referring to what, what happened in Acts chapter 18, where it says that Paul worked as a tent maker until what? Until Silas and Timothy show up. They come, and then now they begin providing support for Paul and his ministry. And so Paul can devote himself completely to the preaching of the word. But before they got there, Paul's providing for himself. Silas and Timothy arrive. They're taking over that support. But at no point does Paul accept compensation for his ministry from among the Corinthians. Now, in 1 Corinthians, he points out to them, I had every right to expect compensation. Paul is not... Casting shade on preachers who are compensated for their work. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 9. He says that is well and good and right in a church, in a ministry. That's right. He for himself, though, for his own specific purposes, was foregoing that. He never accepted that. He had a right to it, but he's not doing it. Look at verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region's of Achaia. Now, Achaia is just a larger territory of which Corinth is a part. And Paul's saying, I'm not going to give up my ability to boast in what God is doing by, you know, starting receiving compensation from you. I'm not going to change my free offer of the ministry. I'm not going to surrender that grounds for boasting in the Lord. Why? He answers in the next verse. Verse 11. And why? 
because I do not love you? Is that why I'm doing what I'm doing or not doing? God knows I do. So Paul is, it sounds like some people are saying, okay, the explanation for why you won't accept compensation for services rendered is because you don't really love us. They might have thought it an expression of disrespect that Paul wouldn't take their money. Indeed, one commentator says that the refusal of gifts and services was a refusal of friendship and dishonored the donor. But Paul, and this is a cultural thing, right? But Paul forgo, would forgo this right, and with all the churches, he would forgo this right. He would, ex, he would accept offerings from churches to partner with his ministry elsewhere, but if you look closely in the New Testament, he doesn't accept compensation from that church for the ministry he's doing there, right? He takes money from churches and he uses it, and they can partner with him in ministry elsewhere. But he doesn't take it from the churches to be compensated by them for the work he's doing there. Why was that? I think it's likely because he didn't want to become beholden in his ministry to benefactors. Paul did not want to create a scenario in which he had a social obligation to respond in certain ways to gift givers. There were social expectations in that culture that if someone gave you money, you had to give them some kind of a gift back. You had to give them flattery back. You owed them a kind of social obeisance. He wanted total freedom to preach and to carry out his ministry on Christ's terms, not on some terms that a donor sets before him. Now, did Paul do this to disrespect them or because he didn't love them? No. Paul says that God knows that he loves them. His freedom to preach the gospel to them is actually a boon and a blessing to them. That he's not encumbered in this way is a humiliating thing that's a blessing for them. And he's doing it because he loves them. I, you know, I would just say, especially in the environment, the culture that we live in, we need to beware never to get in the mode of expecting pastors, ministry workers to be admired and sought after for all the wrong things. Be really careful that as a congregation, you don't cultivate expectations of worldliness in a pastor by expecting him to follow every trend, wear all the right clothes, drive the right cars, take all the right vacations, have all the right highly placed, important contacts in his life. Be very careful you don't cultivate expectations that a pastor or ministry worker would want to project worldly images of success. It's required of a steward that he be found faithful, not that he be found cool and acceptable in the eyes of the world. That's the kind of ministry we want to cultivate. There are pastors who do this other thing and who cultivate images that are attractive to the world in worldly ways and they play this game and they're encouraged to do so sometimes by well-meaning and sometimes by not so well-meaning parishioners in the church and it's a spiritually deadly hopeless game to do that and we want to guard ourselves from that kind of mindset and Paul's just not going there with them he's not going to be that kind of apostle so Paul's authentic apostleship Paul's free ministry finally Paul's direct confrontation. And here it is. Everybody look at verse 12. And what am I doing? And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim 
that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Paul is saying, I'm going to keep on doing this kind of ministry where I don't get compensated for it from among the people that I'm working. He's not going to give it up no matter how much some people wish that he would give it up. And he gives a reason for this. Because he wants to show that he's operating on a totally different level from all these false teachers who are making themselves out to be an apostle like he is. They're pretending to be an apostle, but they aren't really like he is. If they're going to boast in their super-duper apostleship and try to make themselves out to be better than Paul, then Paul is saying, well, let them go for a little while without getting compensated. See how long they stick around if the money dries up. One commentator put it this way. If they want to operate on Paul's level of ministry, they need to abandon their self-serving ways and take the humble role of a slave. Unless they adopt his practice of preaching for nothing, they cannot class themselves with him. Would they be willing to give up financial support and humble themselves with work to further the gospel? Paul thinks it unlikely. End quote. Why won't these guys give up their compensation? Because they aren't who they claim to be. They're saying they're like Paul. They're apostles, super apostles. But they're not faithful preachers of Christ. They, are, they may claim to be, but they are none of those things. It's clear here in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And this language is pretty tough here. Some commentators think that Paul is speaking here like Jesus spoke to Peter when he told him, get behind me, Satan. You remember that? Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, in Matthew 16. Now, ultimately, we know that Peter was a true disciple of Christ and not literally a servant of Satan. Some interpreters think the same is true of Paul's words here to these, about these false teachers and uh, these guys who are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're really disciples, but they're just behaving in a certain way. And so, you know, he's trying to, to correct them. I, you know, I'm not actually convinced by that interpretation. And the reason is because of what he says next about them. Look at verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Okay, these Men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. It's no wonder that they're disguising themselves in this way because that's how Satan operates. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I don't think Paul is using a rhetorical flourish here to call them Satan's service because it says there at the end of verse 15, their end will correspond to their deeds. I don't know how to read that except that as a statement about their impending judgment before God. And Paul is saying they are going to come up short at that judgment when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. At least that's how I think Paul is laying this down here. But in either case, whether you take it as real servants of Satan or just believers who are temporarily in error like Peter, this situation is really grave and serious 
No matter who you are, the situation is serious if you put yourself on the side of Satan against Christ. Any person who is contradicting and attacking the apostolic word is putting themselves on the side of Satan against Christ. Any person who's denigrating the word of God and treating it like their plaything and bending it to make it go into whatever shape they want it to be, they're... They are, anybody doing that, okay, they are setting themselves on the side of Satan against Christ. But here's the thing. Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see, and he's trying to get us to see, that people who come to a church and do this often, most often, do not think of themselves or present themselves as doing the work of Satan. They don't come in and say, we're here for Satan. Listen, to, that's not what they do. They will do the work of the devil in the name of Christ. They will be, like Paul says elsewhere, they will be deceiving and being deceived. Gabe sent the elders uh, a letter, or excuse me, an article from the Courier-Journal that appeared last week about a local Baptist church here in Louisville who recently hired a new co-pastor. I'm going to read you a little bit from this article. I'm not going to say any names here, but I'm going to read you from the article. It says this, The new co-pastor at the historic church has a unique tie to the house of worship where he now serves. It's where he and his husband were married in 2016. The Knott County native was called last month to serve at the Louisville church where he was ordained earlier this year, marking the first time the church has been led by a gay pastor. He'll be a familiar sight on stage moving forward alongside fellow co-pastor, and then it gives the name of the woman who is his co-pastor. And it quotes from him. For them to say, we've seen you as a church member, we've seen you as a youth minister, and we trust you with shepherding us onto whatever is next in our spiritual journey. That is the honor of my life, the new pastor told the Courier-Journal. And it's a burden that I do not take lightly. The church cut ties with the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary more than 20 years ago, though because the Southern Baptist Convention did not accept the idea of women being pastors, the pastor said. Instead... The church and several others around Louisville aligned with the American Baptist Convention. The church has evolved since then, the pastor said, noting 97% of the people that attended the church were in favor of him becoming a co-pastor. And then it quotes from him again, I don't have any concern of anyone leaving our church over the call to me as a co-pastor, he said. In fact, I think folks come to our church because they have heard of a church where there's not only a gay man serving as co-pastor, but my co-pastor is a woman. And that says something, I think, about our church. Well, I think he's right about that last part. It does say something about the church, but it's not what he think it says, thinks it says about their church. Not only does this church openly defy what God's word says about God only calling qualified men to be pastors, more seriously, it's also openly and proudly defying what the Bible teaches about sexual immorality and about the sanctity of marriage. Issues that, to get them wrong, the Bible says, will exclude you from the kingdom of God. It doesn't get any more serious than that. And yet notice 
that the church and the new pastor are not doing this in the name of Satan. They are doing this in the name of Christ. They are claiming that God has called this man and this woman to be pastors at that church. They are saying that God blesses gay unions and sexual immorality. In other words, they're masquerading as angels of light. They are not really who they say they are. They're not really who they, th they even may think they are. They're not serving the God they purport to serve. They have the appearance of godliness, but they've denied its power. The thing you have to understand about false teaching in the church is that it never arrives by announcing itself as doing the work of Satan. That's not how it works. It always comes in flying under the veneer of righteous Christianity. This is why Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember this in Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice what Jesus tells us about the false teachers. They look like sheep. They call Jesus Lord. They prophesy in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They perform miracles in Jesus' name. They think themselves to be bona fide believers. But they aren't believers. Ultimately, what they believe to be true about themselves is not what is true about themselves. Nor does it define how God will render judgment on them at the great day. You can believe that sexual immorality and defiling marriage are consistent with following Christ, but that doesn't mean that they are just because you believe it and feel good about it. And that will become very clear at the judgment because it's not what you claim that ultimately reveals who you are. It's what you do that ultimately reveals who you are. If you're thumbing your nose at Christ and at his word and claiming to be a Christian, you aren't a Christian. You don't belong to him. There may be the appearance of a sheep on the outside, but there is a wolf underneath. Jesus taught us that. Now Paul is telling us that. And we have to take this to heart. We pay attention to the fruit because the fruit will tell you what is actually down at the root. In spite of all the deceptive words that may be coming out otherwise, making otherwise Christian or righteous claims, we pay attention to the fruit as an indication of what it's at, at the root. And so we pay attention to the teaching and we measure it by this. And when someone comes along preaching another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, we go with this and not with the super duper apostles. No matter how good they look or how good they sound, we go with the word of God. Father, I pray for your people that you would make them wise and discerning that you would give them spines of steel in the moments where they have to see and to have clarity and sometimes even to confront. 
Father, I pray for any who are here who don't know you. I pray for them, that you would help them to see that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross and was raised three days later for sinners. That any sinner, no matter how far gone they are, can be reconciled to you just by repenting of their sin and believing in Christ. They can be saved. Father, for those who are here who have not yet done that, I pray that you would draw them out, open up their hearts and their eyes, and help them to see Christ and be saved. Father, protect us from the evil one. Make us sure-footed in the word of God. Make us courageous. We ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.